Recording a guitar amplifier is kind of a circuitous process. The guitar signal is amplified through the speakers, then mic'd and sent back to the board. Some engineers use three or four mics to record a guitar amp, and some say, you know what, let's forget the amp and just plug the thing directly in. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about guitars recorded with one mic, guitars recorded with five mics, and guitars where the engineer just used a direct input. The episode that you're about to listen to is a 100% independent, listener-supported production. Thank you so much to all of Strong Songs' patrons. You're making this show possible. If you like the show and would like to help me keep making it, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs to find out how to do so. On this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most widely requested songs by one of the most widely requested artists that I've ever talked about on Strong Songs. It is an extremely cool song and a little bit different than anything I've talked about before, so let's warm up the strings, mic the guitars, and do this thing. is a mysterious process any way you slice it, no matter how many songs I learn, how many songs I write, or how many songs I pick apart on this podcast, I always come back to the fact that no two songs are written the same way. I've written songs where I just had to work at it, I had a single idea, and then I just kind of went at it and worked and worked and worked and slowly turned it into something, and I've written songs that were the exact opposite, where the song just came to me almost fully formed, lyrics and all, and all I had to do was write it down. I kind of call that excavation songwriting, where it feels more like you're just digging up a song that was already there. Now, yes, sometimes you're digging up a song that somebody else already wrote, and you realize that later to your chagrin, but a lot of the times it really is just an original idea. It just has this feeling of discovery. Anyone who's written a song will know that feeling, and it's a sort of magical, flowing feeling of pure creativity. When it comes to other people's songs, I generally try to avoid doing too much theorizing about how they wrote the song or what their process was like, but there are songs that when you hear them, it gives you a sense of what it was like to write them just through the music and the way that the music flows. To me, this episode's Strong Song is one of the most organic and flowing pieces of music I've ever heard, a song that sounds like it was plucked out of the ether, and that the more time I spent learning, the more impressed I am with how singular it is and how it reflects this one undeniable musical voice. It is a song with an iconic vocal performance, but before the vocals even come in, it starts with an equally iconic 11-note piano melody. As you hear those notes, you think you see movement outside of your window, and you look up just in time to catch what might have been a red dress flitting away out of sight. And suddenly you realize you're not at home at all. You're in West Yorkshire in the mid-19th century, and you're looking out the window at a ghost. And that can only mean one thing. It's time for Strong Songs to talk about the great Kate Bush. Like my jealousy, too hard, too greedy. 
There were a bunch of songs I could have picked for my Kate Bush episode. She's had an amazing career spanning 10 albums, many decades, and has made so much good music. But in the end, I had to go back to the beginning with her first biggest hit, Wuthering Heights. Now, Strong Songs has a very diverse and international listenership. We've got listeners all around the world, which is really cool. And as a result of that, it may surprise some of you to hear that I was not super familiar with Kate Bush until very recently. The reason for that is that Kate Bush, an English singer-songwriter, was not actually a big part of the U.S. music scene historically, and kind of still isn't. She's just not talked about over here as much as many of her contemporaries. So I knew her name, I knew that people liked her, and that she made cool music. I guess that I'd heard Wuthering Heights at least, but I'm not even really sure if I had. And when I started making strong songs, pretty soon after that, when I started getting listener emails, I started getting emails requesting that I talk about a Kate Bush song. For a while I filed that away, thinking, ah yeah, Kate Bush, alright, people really seem to like her, I should check out her music a little bit more. I went back and started listening, and then I finally got serious about it for year three, because I decided, alright, Kate Bush is clear a really cool, really big deal. I'm going to go back and really learn her music. I'm going to listen to all of her albums, and I'm going to make an episode about one of her songs. The first thing that I learned is that one does not just casually get into Kate Bush music. It's kind of a commitment because her musical world is this whole universe unto itself. She's such an eclectic and interesting artist, and her album spans so many different sounds and styles that in order to get a kind of handle on her, I had to do a lot of listening. Her debut album, The Kick Inside, was recorded starting when she was just 18 years old and released a few months before she turned 20. It included songs that she'd written from when she was like 13. She started writing songs and taught herself piano very young. She's an autodidact and clearly just this phenomenal talent that arrived seemingly fully formed in that way that only very rare musicians do. I think The Kick Inside is a fascinating album. That's the album that includes Wuthering Heights. It also has some other really great songs. James and the Cold Gun is the one that you just heard. It also has this really beautiful song that reminds me of Joni Mitchell called The Man with the Child in His Eyes. So just on her debut, there's this wide variety of styles that shows a mind constantly at play. She just has this playful approach to music where she's just making sounds that she likes and doesn't feel stuck to any one style, any one style of singing, any one voice. She's constantly singing from other perspectives, using different sounds in her voice. She writes in rock and in pop and in theatrical styles. She's all over the place from the very beginning. And then watching her trajectory, I think, is really fascinating, and I think that it's important to listen to Wuthering Heights and the rest of the kick inside with her future music in mind. 
A lot of musicians take a signature sound and refine it over the years. Kate Bush instead, she kind of moves outward, and you can hear her albums just moving into all of this experimental, unexplored territory over the course of the 1980s. Her fourth album, The Dreaming, is really weird, and I mean that in the best way. It has got some really wild ideas on it. I see the people watching, and see it working for them. And so I went to dreaming, but then I find it Very early on, Bush was in complete control of her music. She was producing her own albums and really just had her hands on everything, which is even true going back to the kick inside. If you read interviews with the people who worked with her on that record, she came in with just all this energy and all these ideas. She was immediately in the control room running the show, even though she was only 18 and these were all seasoned professionals. So she had that instinct from the very beginning, but very quickly just took complete control. And you can hear that that control allowed her to more fully explore all of these sounds that she was hearing. That last track you just heard is the opening track from The Dreaming, Sat in Your Lap, and you can hear she's doing all these different voices at the same time. It's like a choir of different people almost having a conversation with one another, and that is definitely a hallmark of Kate Bush's sound, is her willingness to go into character and do these different voices. The title track, The Dreaming, is this psychedelic experience where she's doing all kinds of different voices, emphasizing different accents. It's extremely cool. The symbolize, keep alive the territorial war. Erase the race, the claim, the place, and say we dig for all or dangle dembles in a bottle and a push him from the pull of bush. <laughs> So three years after that came Hounds of Love, which is probably Bush's best-known record, arguably anyways, and that has a really defined kind of 80s new wave sound that's super cool. She was clearly being influenced by a lot of her contemporaries, even while also influencing a lot of the sounds that we think of as sort of new wave, mid-1980s pop. The opening track on that album, Running Up That Hill, is an extremely strong song that I definitely could have done a whole episode on. Like I could spend 10 minutes just talking about how much I love that synth sound. The thing that's striking about listening to Hounds of Love in the context of Kate Bush's entire discography is how much she's come into her own at this point. It's rare for someone to start as self-assured as Kate Bush did, but even then you can hear how years of working that creative muscle gave her music an even stronger creative focus. Her 
career kept going from there. She's made so much more music. She's still making music today. I think that in those first seven years, you can hear this really dramatic, both refinement and also expansion of her musical sound and of what Kate Bush music even was. And as an admitted latecomer to her music, to me, that's been a really interesting period to look at just because it's rare that you get to hear an artist land with such an impact and just show up with music as great as the music on the kick inside. And then you get to find out the answer to the question, what came next? And watch as that amazing progression happens as an artist who's so talented, so full of ideas and potential goes in all these different directions. And that brings us back to 1978, The Kick Inside, and Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights was the lead single off of 1978's The Kick Inside. It was a number one hit in the UK, the first number one hit by a female artist who also wrote the song. It was written by Bush fairly close to the recording date after she watched the BBC adaptation of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. She was enamored of the story, so she wrote a song from the perspective of Catherine Earnshaw, a character in the novel. So already we're in slightly different territory than most songs that we've talked about on this show, just because this is a literary song. Kate Bush is writing from the perspective of Catherine Earnshaw, Kathy as she calls her, as she is outside of the window at Wuthering Heights begging her former love Heathcliff to let her in. Now in the story, Heathcliff is haunted by the ghost of Catherine who died earlier in the story, and it's kind of the thing that undoes him. Wuthering Heights is known as kind of one of the originators of gothic fiction. And I haven't read it, but I did read a recap just for this. I, uh, I do a lot of research for the show, but I didn't have time to read all of Wuthering Heights. But basically what happens is this is one of those stories where if people had communicated a little bit better, things would have gone much better for all of them. So there's this big miscommunication. Catherine dies and Heathcliff is kind of haunted by the fact that she died and her ghost appears to him in this one scene. That scene caught Kate Bush's attention and she decided to write a song imagining what Kathy was saying while she was outside the window. So when Bush sings, Heathcliff, it's me, I'm Kathy, I've come home, I'm so cold, that's what she's talking about. often overlooked way, Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights is actually a profound example of the power of fan fiction. Bush was struck by this scene and she put herself into the shoes of a character in the scene and rewrote it from that perspective in the process creating beautiful art of her own and elevating the source material that inspired her. Even just conceptually, Wuthering Heights is kind of on a different level than a lot of other songs, but it's also musically on a different level than a lot of other songs. It is a fascinating composition. There's a lot of cool stuff going on here, so let's begin to dig in. Some vital stats up front, Weathering Heights was written by Kate Bush. This album was produced by Andrew Powell, who also arranged all of the recordings. He played bass on this, and he also played the celesta, which is a very cool instrument that I will be getting into in a little bit. 
Bush sang the lead vocal, which she apparently recorded in a single take. She also played piano. The other musicians on this track are Duncan McKay on the organ, David Patton on acoustic guitar, Stuart Elliott on the drums, Morris Pert on percussion, and a small studio orchestra conducted by David Katz. The orchestra mostly consisted of strings, cello, violin, viola, but it also had three French horns, which allowed them to get a mellow brass texture when they needed it. Side note, I'm basing some of this instrumentation explanation on a very cool 2004 Sound on Sound article about the production of this tune, which I will link in the show notes. It also features an electric guitar solo from Ian Berenson, who is perhaps best known as one of the core members of the Alan Parsons Project. He's not the only one. Elliot Patton and producer Powell all did a lot of work with that band. So some really killer musicians contributed to this record. It was recorded at Air Studios in London and mixed by the engineer John Kelly, who did a great job of mixing it. It's a pretty straightforward album from a production perspective, but he made everything sound really, really good. And I like the levels. They're a little bit unusual. The drums are very, very present in the mix. The vocals are a little bit less so, which kind of emphasizes the ethereal nature of Bush's voice. And uh, yeah, it's some, it's some cool stuff, which we'll talk about more in depth as we go. One thing I'm not really going to get into on this episode, but that I do want to mention here, is the 1986 version of Wuthering Heights, which is a combination remake and remix that features a more dramatic vocal performance from Bush and a bigger, if slightly less distinctive, mix. It's actually kind of hard to find it on streaming services. I found a version of it on YouTube, and it is a fascinating listen, particularly for anyone who's familiar with the original recording. cool, but for this episode, we're focusing on the 1978 original, so let's start at the very beginning with that 11-note piano riff. So technically, Wuthering Heights is in the key of C-sharp, though we start on an A major chord. This song definitely shifts key centers as it goes, but it does start on that A major chord. This riff is a really straightforward thing. It starts on the five, then goes to the three, and then it goes to the two, which makes it sound kind of unresolved. So each time it ends on the two, you feel like you haven't quite landed yet. So it goes five, three, two, five, three, two, five, three, five, three, one. And then the final time it finally goes to one, which makes it sound resolved and nice and self-contained. Now that second statement of the same motif is really cool. There's actually some subtle stuff going on there. The piano is playing up the octave, so it's even lighter and and much more just sort of sparkly in the very high end of that grand piano that Kate Bush is playing on. You can probably also hear there's a nice shimmering A major chord in the strings that sneaks in as that second statement enters. The whole thing is really beautifully chimey, and there are a couple of other things contributing to that. First of all, there's a percussion hit that's either a finger cymbal or a triangle, just a little ding, right when the second A major chord comes in. Setting up that high chord is a run-up, a pretty cool percussion instrument played by Morris Pert. I'd initially taken a guess that this was either a glockenspiel or the celesta, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but a couple people wrote in to point out that this is definitely a bell tree, which, yep, that's definitely what it is. So a bell tree is what it sounds like. It's a stack of cylindrical bells that gets smaller and smaller in pitch as it gets taller, sort of like a sonic stalagmite. Running a mallet straight up one will get you a sound like what Perk gets here at the start of Wuthering Heights. 
It's very cool. There's one more small thing that happens here that I'm not totally sure what it is, but I do want to point it out. In Kate Bush's left hand, she's just playing an A power chord, which is just a root and fifth chord with no third, and she plays the same thing both times, uh, even when she moves her right hand up the octave the second time. But the second time when she lands on it, there's this really cool effect that it sounds to me like some kind of a tape delay effect, like a tape echo, maybe a tape machine going whoom and it kind of scoops the note a little bit, which isn't something you can actually do on piano, which makes me think it's some kind of a manipulation. Here, listen for it. It's right when the second statement of the motif comes in. You'll just hear this whoom kind of a sound that lifts you up. It's so cool, it almost sounds like a voice. That would have been my first guess, but on listening to it, I think it's some kind of a tape effect. It also might be something in the orchestra, either a wind instrument or maybe some part of the string section doing a little bit of a scoop there on that note. But anyways, another little subtle, really cool touch that adds to the overall feeling of lift to this intro. This intro is just four bars, but it's subtle and it's beautifully done. It really speaks to how good Powell's arrangement is. It kind of tells this whole little story just in the first four measures of the song. For the first two measures, there's a piano motif, 11 notes, just the piano, kind of like an establishing shot. Then for the third and fourth bars, it's almost like that piano motif ramps up and into the heavens. And to get there, the bell tree does this big glissando, taking the energy and just carrying it up. And right as the piano arrives to restate the motif up the octave, when it lands, there's this chiming triangle or cymbal sound that's almost like a sparkling star, further lifted by a scoop, this sort of hung that lifts things up and that continues to sparkle through the strings as the strings add this sense of sustain. There's a kind of ringing feeling as the strings carry it on. It feels to me like a small shimmering light that launches itself into the heavens before subtly exploding outward in a burst of celestial light that just so subtly brightens the evening sky. It's a heck of a way to introduce a song, but that's just what it does. And from there, it's time for Kate to start singing. Out on the wily, windy moors, we'd roll and fall in green. You had a temper like my jealousy, too hot, too greedy. How could you leave me when I needed to possess you? I hated you. I loved you, too. Oh, man, what a way to begin a song. This mercurial voice, this character who's so conflicted and full of passion, this ghost speaking through the window. It's really cool, and it is the kind of thing that I can imagine an 18-year-old not doing in a self-conscious way, not doing because it's something interesting and different, but just because she probably thought it would be fun. She liked the book and thought she'd write this song from the perspective of a character from the book rather than explicitly doing it because it's a pretty different thing to do. It would be a different thing to do now. It certainly was then, and it immediately sets the song apart for many of its contemporaries.
This first verse is just performed by Bush singing and playing piano, accompanied by the orchestra. There's what sounds to me like that French horn section adding a nice smooth brass sound that develops over the course of the verse, accompanying her piano part as she moves through the four chords of the verse. Those four chords are pretty angular, they're kind of unusual. It starts on an A major chord, then it drops to an F major chord down to the flat sixth, then it goes down a half step from there to E, and then it goes to a C sharp seven chord. It's really just like a C sharp major. She sings the dominant seventh in the melody, which is a B, that flat seventh. But it does this piano riff there that goes from an E to an F, which is the flat third to the major third. And that's a really distinctive sound. It's kind of a goofy sound. You'll hear it actually a lot in jazz and blues. Usually there it's a way of adding a blues sound, which is more of a minor third to a song that usually has a major third. So it has a kind of more chill or kind of cool sound when you hear a minor third to a major third in blues. Here it's got a little bit more of a circusy quality to it, or it's got this just kind of goofy, uh, like hurdy-gurdy man kind of a sound that really turned my head to its side the first time that I heard this part of the song. So that's an unusual combination of chords. Going from an A major to an F major like that right off the bat opens the door to a lot of unusual notes, which she really emphasizes in the melody. Going from the F to the E is like a half-step movement that also opens the door to some strange sounds, and then the final chord is that C-sharp dominant 7 with that weird sharp 9, you know, flat 3, major 3 thing going on. It really just has some strange stuff to it. So we're starting to get into what I'm talking about when I say that this song feels like the kind of song that just sprung to mind for her, like it had that kind of excavation songwriting quality to it. And I don't know whether it did, but it feels so flowing. It just feels like each chord just sort of goes to the next one, not in a way where you're following the rules of harmony or or songwriting or something, but just like, oh yeah, let's just go to an F here. All right, well now we're on F, let's go down to E. And then why not go to C sharp? And when we go to C sharp, let's just add this weird minor third thing. It has a very organic feeling and it feels very free everything about this song feels very free like she was just playing around with ideas and they just sprung to her so quickly and she just moved through them i'm sure that a big part of that is due to the fact that bush wasn't just a musician she was also a dancer she was always incorporating elements of dance into her live shows but there's also a dancerly quality to her music itself to this sort of graceful and unpredictable tangents of her melodies there were two music videos for weathering heights which is pretty cool for a pre-mtv era song the red dress video is definitely the more famous one. In that video, Bush is kind of just standing in a field and wearing a red dress, and then she's dancing around while she sings the song. And it's really a pretty amazing video. The red dress has gone on to become a whole icon unto itself, and the image of Bush wearing that dress while dancing by herself is inextricably linked to Wuthering Heights in general. If you haven't seen the comedian Noel Fielding performing his version of the red dress dance during a BBC fundraiser, you owe it to yourself to watch it. It is incredible. So there's definitely a dancing quality to this song, and to the way that this chord progression lightly skips around. The melody works very similarly. The phrasing on this melody is fascinating. It's very interesting phrasing uh, that starts one way and then kind of shifts as she moves through the three total phrases in the opening verse. The melody on the first phrase, which we've heard a few times by now, goes like this. The second phrase starts much the same way as the first phrase, but then it departs in the second half and it begins to stretch out with slightly longer words, too hot, too greedy. 
I love the way she slides up at that uh, when she sings You Had a Temper up to that F sharp. You had a so those first two phrases are pretty similar. The second phrase begins to move away from the first one. The third phrase is completely different, though it's over the same chords. Totally different melody. It also has an extra bar. It resolves from that C-sharp dominant chord to a G-sharp major chord. So it actually ends in a very different place, which is setting up the pre-chorus. So we're kind of moving through a bunch of different key centers. The resolution here is not an A major chord, despite the fact that this song starts ostensibly in A major. It actually ends down a half step on G-sharp major. So the melody on that final phrase sounds like this. to the pre-chorus, which is its own whole harmonic can of worms. The whole thing has a kind of a bewitching quality to it. It moves so quickly, it's so winding. Each chord that it moves to, each new step in the chord progression, is kind of unexpected, and there's a twisting feeling like you're kind of just being led through a dense forest or something, and you're never quite sure where you're going to wind up. And that lack of resolution is one of the interesting things about this song. It does have these arrival moments, the chorus is a really big one, but it never really stays put after arriving somewhere, it really quickly starts to change, the key center will change, the melody will change, she'll move you in a new direction very quickly, and that gives the whole song this kind of a floating quality that fits perfectly with her ethereal floating vocals, the way the arrangement is constantly lifting you up, the subject matter of the song itself, which is being told from the perspective of a ghost floating outside of someone's window. It's all working in the service of this one vibe that is distinct and very powerfully conveyed right from the beginning of the song. So with all of that in your ear, let's listen to that whole first verse, and I'm actually going to back it up to the intro too, since it's just four bars. So we're going to listen to the intro, which then feeds into the first verse, which consists of three phrases, each of which is a little bit different than the one before it, moving through that unusual chord progression, and just put your ears on and listen for everything we just talked about, how those chords are moving in this kind of unusual way, this kind of angular pattern, how that C-sharp chord has that flat third and the major third in the piano that adds a sort of a jerky quality to that chord, the way that the phrases expand and begin to move upward and become more billowy as they move, that final resolution to the G-sharp major chord, which only stays put for one bar before moving on straight into the pre-chorus. All right, here we go. Bad dreams in the night, they told me I was going to lose the fight, leave behind my wuthering, wuthering, wuthering heights. The pre-chorus on this song is interesting and it sets up the chorus beautifully. Each phrase consists of three chords and there are three phrases in the pre-chorus, similar to the verse actually, which also had three phrases, like it went through three times, which is a bit unusual. There have been songs I've talked about in the past where there are three phrase sets or three bar phrases. Typically songs tend to go for even numbers of things. If we 
know, four phrases in a section or four bars in a phrase, the pre-chorus of Wuthering Heights has two three-bar phrases and then a four-bar phrase for a total of three phrases to set up the chorus. It also introduces the bass and the drums just in time for the drop on the chorus. It's brilliantly done and very economical, so let's listen to the entire pre-chorus now. So first, the harmony. If you remember, the verse finally resolves at the very end of the third phrase to a G-sharp major chord, which is that kind of unexpected place given that it starts on A major. So we go from that G-sharp major up to a D-sharp minor 7, then up to an F-sharp chord to an F-sus. So again, an unusual chord progression and one of those very flowing free chord progressions that's kind of emblematic of the kinds of chord progressions that Kate Bush was using on this song. It's also fun to play this one on piano. It feels really good under your fingers the way that a lot of piano-y songs do. Um, Past artists that I've talked about like Stevie Wonder and Elton John, also Freddie Mercury, people who wrote their songs on the piano. A lot of times when you learn the song on piano, you then you get to kind of see what their fingers were doing and it feels very natural to play. And this chord progression as kind of odd as it is compared to the usual 1-4-5 pop rock stuff, it does have a logic to it just on the keyboard. When you go from D sharp minor 7 up to F sharp major, you're really kind of playing the same notes. There's just not a D sharp in the bass anymore. And then when you drop down to an F sharp sus, you're just lowering the C sharp to a C and the F sharp to an F. So it sounds like a complicated chord progression, but when you just play the chords just sort of as triads or as a seventh chord to triads um, on the piano, it's very logical and it voice leads very well from one chord to the next. Now the sound that they're getting on that pre-chorus is really cool. The piano is there in the middle and on the sides that's actually producer Andrew Powell playing the celesta, an instrument that's a big part of Wuthering Heights' distinctive sound. Now, I've always heard the Celesta called the Celesta, so that's what I'm going to call it. Um, in the liner notes for the album, it's just referred to as the Celeste, C-E-L-E-S-T-E. Some people pronounce that Celeste as well. It's an orchestral instrument that is a keyboard instrument where the hammers are hitting resonant metal instead of the strings that the hammers are usually hitting in a piano, and it creates this really ringy, really chimey, beautiful sound that can add a lot of upper atmosphere to an orchestral arrangement. You've definitely heard Celesta before, even if you didn't know that was what you were hearing. It plays the opening theme music to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and uh, most famously, probably, on the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. That beautiful bell-like sound ringing out above the orchestra is a celesta being played by someone sitting at a keyboard that looks a lot like a piano. Ugh, you know what's good? The Nutcracker Suite. I could do like five episodes just about music from the Nutcracker Suite. Some of the greatest melodies ever composed and a showcase for some unusual instruments like the Celesta.
The Celesta plays a crucial function in Wuthering Heights. It pairs with the high piano that Kate Bush is playing and the very high notes that she's singing to create this ethereal, beautiful sound that immediately sets the recording apart every time you hear it. So that's producer Andrew Powell on the Celesta, and he also played bass. His bass comes in here. It's a really pretty intense bass entrance, just jumps right in there, along with the sustained hi-hat sizzle from drummer Stuart Ellison, setting up the rhythm section's entrance in the chorus, and actually the first time that this song has a steady groove from a rhythm section at all. The last thing in the pre-chorus that I want to talk about is Kate Bush's vocal delivery and her phrasing. This is where she sings the title of the song, Wuthering Heights. I love how she sings the title of this song and really just her overall approach to the phrasing on this pre-chorus. She brings this wonderful lilting energy to it. She sings bad dreams in the night pretty straightforwardly, but then they told me I was going to lose the fight. She puts this bounce on it. And then she just doubles the bounce when she sings the title of the song. What the ring, what the ring, what the ring heights. Probably my favorite vocal delivery in the entire recording. And as she sings that, she repeats the word wuthering, which I think is cool because it's kind of a weird word. It's really fun the way that she says it. They also add another bar here, another bar of F sus leading into the chorus, which just extends the phrase a little bit, building the anticipation for the chorus. So let's listen to the entire pre-chorus for Wuthering Heights leading into the chorus, which we'll then go on to listen to as well. probably hear some interesting things going on in that chorus, both in the chord progression and in the counting. Uh, It never quite resolves the way that you think it's going to. It does reach a resolution, but it jumps off of it really quickly, and that's kind of where the chord progression and the counting uh, come together to create this sense of a kind of a spiral, this sort of floating, winding, unresolving journey that always jumps off to somewhere new each time it lands. So we're firmly in the key of C-sharp here, and we start on the four chord in the key of C-sharp, which is an F-sharp. We go from F-sharp down to D-sharp, the two minor, down to five, which is a G-sharp, and then up to one, the C-sharp. That's a pretty straightforward chord progression on its own, and if it stayed on the C-sharp for a little while, it would be like a lot of songs, just going four, two, five, one. The thing is, this chorus has kind of unusual counting. So I tend to count this kind of at double time. I think that it's really just sort of around 60 beats per minute. I kind of counted it 125. So one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, which would then mean that the drums are playing a halftime feel. You can count it however you want. To me, though, that means that there are bars of two, four interspersed among all the bars of four, four. And the crucial thing is those bars of two, those shortened bars, always 
always happen whenever the song resolves to the one, which means that every time this chorus resolves and lands, it immediately jumps off and goes back to the four chord. That gives it this perpetually unresolved feeling that's really cool and distinct to this song. They basically removed two beats of C-sharp that would create a much more settled feeling when that C-sharp comes, and as a result, it feels like it lands on the C-sharp and then immediately jumps off and gets back into the chord progression for a new phrase. So the phrase goes from that 4, to 2, to 5, to 1, and when it lands on the 1, it could stay there for two more beats, and that would be kind of the more expected thing for it to do. It would move quickly from the 4, to the 2, to the 5, and then it would spend a minute on the 1 before going back to the 4 for the next phrase. Here, let me count it. This is what that would sound like. 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4. Instead, the C-sharp, the one chord, only gets two beats, which makes the whole thing feel like it doesn't have a chance to really resolve. It lands on that C-sharp and then immediately jumps back to the 4 for the next phrase. Here's me playing what actually happens in the song, and I'll count along. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four. She does the same thing again with a slightly different chord progression right after this. She goes from four to five to one, the most straightforward chord progression in pop music, but again, she hits the one, that C-sharp chord, but only stays on it for two beats before jumping again to the four. So every time the one chord comes around in this chorus, it doesn't have any time to really enjoy the fact that it's the one chord before she moves on to the four chord again to begin a new phrase. And it gives the whole thing this tumbling forward momentum that just sort of rolls and rolls and rolls forward without ever staying still. Bush's decision to de-emphasize the one chord is the key to understanding the tumbling rhythm of that chorus, which is distinct. No other chorus really quite sounds like this. A big part of it is that chord progression. Another big part of it is the melody that she's singing. It's a very simple melody in the key of C-sharp major, I mean it's just 3-2-1-3-2-1 for a lot of it, but she changes the phrasing ever so slightly each time, which causes it to offset from the last time that you heard it, and adds to the kind of disorienting nature of this chorus, especially given the odd counting that's going on. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I think of the chorus melody this way. If the chorus as a whole, all the instruments, chords, parts, is a planet, the chorus melody is bouncing in orbit around it, cycling between two melodic moons. One melodic moon is up at F, that's where Kate Bush sings from F to D sharp to C sharp. The other moon is down at G sharp, that's where she walks back up. I picture Bush's voice as sort of like Mario in Super Mario Galaxy, or like a yo-yo moving between multiple anchor points on a string. She's orbiting one moon, she swings around down to the other one, then back to the first, the whole time she's moving in this looping, gravity-free way that's so loose and soaring. So first she's around the first moon, then she goes down to the second moon, then swings back up to the first, then back to the second, and then back to the first to repeat the melody. Crucially, she visits each melodic moon at different points in the bar, which keeps you as a listener off balance. When you put the whole thing together, it makes for a pretty dizzying ride. 
Here, let's listen to the whole chorus and I'm gonna play along with her on the piano and just really focus on the melody that she's singing. Even if you've heard this song a thousand times, try to really hear that melody for what it is and hear the way that she takes different parts of it and moves them slightly earlier or later in subsequent phrases, like she's swinging back and forth in orbit around two melodic moons. Here we go. The rest of the ensemble is pretty straightforward, aside from the celesta, which is an unusual instrument. There's acoustic guitar in here. This is David Patton, who has the credit for acoustic guitar on this, though in that Sound on Sound article, Ian Berenson says that he also played some 12-string acoustic guitar, so he may be in here as well. You can hear the acoustic guitar panned left and right. They're just kind of strumming through the chord progression. The drums are in. Drums sound really great on this recording, just playing that steady backbeat groove. The bass is in. The bass is very hot in this mix, and I actually think it sounds great. I think he's just playing through a DI here just sort of plugged right into the board like I talked about in the intro rather than playing through a bass amp sounds nice and full and the final crucial instrument is the celesta which is just ringing out chords along with Kate Bush's chords on the piano just playing them not quite as frequently and chiming out just adding this ringing chiming sound to the upper end of the mix it's a beautiful sound and really enhances that high-end energy that this whole song has so let's listen back to that entire chorus now and keep your ears open for all of those things. The bass and the drums, pretty straightforward and easy to hear. The acoustic guitars are a little more subtle. They're panned to the left and the right, just strumming through the chords. Kate Bush's piano is center stage here. It's a very important part of the sound and it's accompanied by the celesta, which is a little more subtle, but it's up there ringing out in the high stratosphere of the mix, which of course is also where Bush's vocals sit as she sings through these interesting melodies that just sort of flit and bounce around following that chord progression that refuses to stay on one for more than two beats, never resolving for very long before jumping on to the next idea. All right, relax your ears, just take it all in. It's a heck of a chorus. See if you can hear all of that. Here we go. I love that setup to the second verse, actually. There's a really cool fill from Stuart Elliott on the drums. It's just this great, very tasty thing. He goes down the toms in typical dramatic fashion. And you can also hear that chimey run-up and that triangle ring-out that happened during the intro as Morris Pert runs up the bell tree. Listen for all that. The second verse follows the same basic framework as the first verse, but the rhythm section is in and the orchestra is much more present, which just creates a way fuller and more dramatic sound and actually emphasizes how much smaller the verse sounds the first time before the rhythm section has come in and what a dramatic shift it is when the rhythm section comes in on the first chorus. Like on the second pre-chorus, listen to how hard Powell digs in on the bass. Walk the 
It's a really bass-driven sound. I don't think that's just because he's the one producing it. After all, he didn't mix this. But uh, the bass really just kind of drives the bus, especially on that pre-chorus. He's playing these just cool kind of pedals that just build and build. There's a lot more energy in this second pre-chorus than there was in the first pre-chorus, which was when he entered. Let's listen back to that one. This is the first pre-chorus, which is where the bass and the drums first entered. Now compare that with the second pre-chorus where the full rhythm section is in and everything is going full steam. Just rocks a lot harder. This song rules. Um, yeah, the energy on that second pre-chorus and the build into that second chorus is so sweet. After it's taken them so long to get the full rhythm section in, they really just lean into it and it rocks. One small but significant example of that shift is something Stuart Elliott does on the second chorus that he doesn't do on the first chorus. Both times he builds in during the pre-chorus with a steady hi-hat sizzle, but at the start of the second chorus, he hits the crash cymbal. It makes for a much more dramatic impact the second time around. The first time, he just lands on the kick in the closed hi-hat like this. That's relatively dramatic since it's the first time the drums have entered, but on the second chorus, he raises the intensity further by hitting that crash. Elliot is economical with his cymbals throughout this recording, which makes them really count when he does hit them. You can hear the strings are much more present here too, which adds a lot of drama to the sound. And with this new peak established, it's time to take it to the bridge. Let me have it. Let me grab your soul away. Kathy is at her most direct here in the song's bridge, which is a nice change from the now familiar verse and chorus progressions. We've gone up to B-flat minor, which is the relative minor of the chorus key, C-sharp. From there, they do a sort of a descending thing, going from B-flat minor, down a step to A-flat, down another step to F-sharp, before doing a little turnaround from D-sharp minor to C-sharp then looping back around for B-flat minor to repeat the phrase. That kind of descending chord progression is pretty standard for a bridge. It's closer to the chord progression from the pre-chorus, and it stands in contrast to the bigger jumps in the verse and the chorus. The groove and instrumentation have both shifted and introduced some new elements. Elliot has gone up to his ride cymbal on the drums, which is a classic move for drummers to do on a bridge. There's also a new instrument in. Duncan McKay's Hammond organ is now ringing out, which adds a dark intensity to this chord progression. Like a lot of things in Wuthering Heights, this bridge comes in a set of three phrases. The third phrase does something a little bit different on the second chord. Not, 
Instead of just going to an A flat after the B flat minor, they keep the B flat going under the A flat as a pedal. If you remember, a pedal tone is where the bass just sort of stays on a steady tone while the chords move above it. So you get this very dramatic A flat over B flat chord the final time through. Listen for it and pay attention to how the bass stays put when the harmony changes. bridge ends with an exceedingly chimey reprise of the intro, this time going between F-sharp and B-flat minor. <laughs> Whenever someone adds an unexpected instrument like the celesta to a rock recording like this, there's always a moment in the recording where that instrument has to earn its keep, and that little chimey interlude is definitely where Powell's celesta earns its stripes for this song. It doubles with the piano to create this incredibly intense ringing breakdown over which Stuart Elliott lays down an epic drum fill to set up the final chorus. This final chorus is a real homecoming. As a listener, you've heard the chorus enough times to be familiar with its initially unfamiliar loops and curly cues. Bush's voice guides us through a triumphant last restatement of her melody. The strings are in, and quietly at first, Ian Berenson's guitar begins to sneak in as well, ringing out a single sustaining note before erupting into a joyful, melodic guitar solo. I love this guitar solo and this whole way of ending the song. The more standard approach would usually have been to put the solo somewhere in the middle of the song, maybe before or after the bridge, but it's so much more effective here at the end. This new, beautiful sounding instrument soars in above the orchestra, matching the energy of the strings and climbing back toward the heavens. It's a great tone to a classic lyrical Les Paul kind of thing that reminds me of the kind of triumphant Gibson tone I've highlighted on a few past strong songs like Mick Ronson's solo at the end of David Bowie's Starman. And Jeff Lynne's solo on Mr. Blue Sky. It's easy to associate the Les Paul with harder rock, but the real thing about that guitar is how beautifully it can sing. It's just a beautiful new sound to introduce at the end of the song in a triumphant way to begin a long ensemble fade. Kate Bush was a brilliant singer and a genius songwriter, but she was somehow more than that as well. Doubtless due in part to her training as a dancer, her music intersected with the physical world, breathing and flowing through space and time in a constant, never-ending pirouette. Wuthering Heights was just the beginning of an intricate, decades-long dance, and what a beginning it was.
that'll do it for my analysis of Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights, an incredible song from an artist that I'm so glad I've become more familiar with. Thanks to everyone who wrote in to request that I talk about this song, and thanks as always to everyone who supports Strong Songs in so many ways, by spreading the word to your friends, buying merch from the Strong Songs store, or by becoming a patron of the show. I recently just finished a fun musical project that some of you might dig. It's a multi-instrumental arrangement of a song from Hollow Knight, one of my favorite games. It features me playing 18 different instruments, including solos on tenor sax and wine glasses. I'm really proud of it, so I hope you'll check it out. There is a link to the video down in the show notes. I've got some cool musical projects planned for the rest of 2021. I'll certainly be mentioning them on the show when I finish them. You can also keep up on what I've been doing by signing up for my newsletter or following me on Twitter or Instagram. Links for all of that good stuff down in the show notes as well. Shout out to all the private music teachers out there, especially if you've been finding a way to keep on safely teaching during the past year. As more of you get vaccinated, I hope that those of you who've picked up a new instrument during COVID times will look up a private teacher to help you on your way. This episode's outro soloist is the great Charles McNeil, an Oakland-based saxophonist who can really rip. Find his links in the show notes and stick around for his solo, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song.